Well, we have been looking together at the book of Acts over these last three messages, where we see the early church following Jesus' commission in Acts 1, verse 8, to carry the gospel, the good news of salvation, from Jerusalem to all Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this begins to take shape, as we saw this morning, in the founding of the church at Antioch. Then, later on, after the passage that we looked at this morning, in chapters 13 and 14, we see that first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, as they set out from the church at Antioch to carry the gospel to Cyprus and to what is now modern Turkey, but then would be known properly as the cities of Galatia, like Antioch in Pisidia, another Antioch, not the same one, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. It's interesting, as you read this, and you think about missions, and you think that we have been commissioned to be on mission for the Lord Jesus Christ, I wonder if you have a missionary mindset as a Christian. Specifically, what we see here in the example of the Apostle Paul is indeed someone putting the ministry and and others before themselves. My former pastor in South Carolina, his name was Bob Self, is Bob Self, and he's now a missionary in inner city uh, Atlanta, and he uh, expressed that his great desire was to point as many people as, as possible to Jesus Christ in his lifetime. And he was coordinator for the Reformed Baptist Missionary Society for many years, and he and his wife traveled all over the world trying to strengthen and encourage churches as they labored, and missionaries, as they labored on different continents. And when he was back home, he used to challenge young men and young seminarians like myself to be open to going to the mission field. And one way that he would do this was that he would often bring back exotic foods to give the young men to try. So he bought back chocolate-covered grasshoppers and ants, He brought back mealworms from Africa. And he wanted to challenge young people to be prepared to go out and serve on mission fields. And a small part of that was introducing them to different food. In our family, we've tried to take a leaf out of his book with our own children. When I came back from a trip from Florida, I brought alligator jerky uh, with me for us to try. And when I was in Arizona, I brought back lollipops that had dead scorpions in them. Yes, they have them and they're edible. Uh, unfortunately, I think it was only my eldest son who was brave enough to, to eat them all. But why do we do this kind of thing? Well, if you look at Jesus' ministry when he was here on earth, um, and in the book of Luke particularly, one of the things you notice in the book of Luke is how often Jesus ministered to people as he ate with them. Think about it. Accepting somebody's food or hospitality can be a way to begin a relationship. But if you can't accept it or you won't accept it, you may not have that opportunity. You never know what opportunities or conversations may open up simply by sharing food with someone. But the the general principle behind this, and I think behind what Bob was trying to convey, was that it takes us out of ourselves. It takes us out of our own selfishness, our, our comfort zones. It's part of developing a mindset for missions which prioritizes others 
and trying to develop an understanding and a love for other people who might have different perspectives, different cultures, different food. doesn't mean that you will necessarily like everything that you taste, but instead of dismissing them, perhaps you need to examine why you wouldn't try it if it would facilitate the gospel. Is your taste more important than your service? Minor food sensitivities aside, what we have before us this evening in our passage is the reality of Great Commission work. It can lead to real discomfort, physical suffering, and real persecution. Now, when you read a passage like this in the book of Acts, and we hear about Paul getting stoned and then picking up and, and going and, and preaching in another place, it's, it's a little bit hard for us to relate to those experiences. I don't think there's anyone here who have almost been stoned to death on the streets or even had our life threatened necessarily by our faith. It's almost like Paul is some sort of Christian cartoon character with superpowers. But we forget that the message of Acts is designed to exalt Jesus Christ and not men. It's not ultimately about Paul or Barnabas or my church or your church. It's about the God who calls us and sends us all to carry his commission, to be his servants. And we don't have to be superheroes to evangelize and share the gospel. We just have to be faithful to our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Because while the apostles were gifted men, they were also men of clay. You remember how the Apostle Paul describes himself? You only have to read it to see it. He calls himself the chief of sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst, the Apostle Paul says. So how does a sinner who's been saved by Jesus Christ persevere when faced with tests and challenges and hardships? Well, Paul gives us the answer in Philippians 4. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And that's not a Nike commercial for the latest Nike shoes worn by the latest NBA star. What he is saying here is that what enables him to do this, what enables him to persevere, what enables him to endure the hardship is that it is God who strengthens him. God who enables him to overcome things that we can't imagine. It's not Paul and Barnabas who are the superheroes. It's ultimately God. God who converts. And we've said this before. As we saw the growth in the Antioch church, it wasn't because he raised up or brought superhero preacher, uh, the Apostle Paul. No, it says, by the hand of the Lord, the church grew. God is the one who saves. God is the one who chooses you. He chooses us. He builds his church by his hand. And God uses means. And it's really interesting that he uses weak individuals, weak men and women like you and like me. I remember even the first time that I preached this passage a number of years ago, I was struggling with how to preach this passage. And I, I talked to a brother and he was, he came alongside and he helped me. And sometimes as pastors, you reach blocks and he was helpful in 
preparing, even preparing the sermon. Sometimes you don't even think how, what, what kind of a struggle it can be to preach the word. But God is gracious and helps. And he, help, he brings alongside those to help. He saves us. He strengthens us. He enables us to bring forward his word. Well, in our passage, we're going to look at how God gives strength to the church to fulfill their mission. First, we're going to see how he gives strength to his suffering servants. We'll see that in verses 19 to 21. But secondly, we'll see how he strengthens new Christians and church plants. And we see that in verses 22 to 23. And third, how he strengthens the sending church. And the sending churches in verses 24 to 28. But first, we're going to look at this strength that he offers to suffering servants. Notice how God provides strength when we need it. Verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. This is a truly difficult situation. The blindness and hatreds of the Jews is incredible in this passage. It says that some of them traveled from Antioch to Lystra. Now, remember, this is before you could just hop in the car. And uh, you know how far it is to go 30 kilometers in Barbados. They traveled 145 kilometers from one place to another. Now, that takes a lot of hate to go that distance. This isn't just an afternoon stroll. It's actually geographically through hill and mountain country in southern Turkey. And they had their own mission. And their own mission was of the devil to destroy the mission of Paul and Barnabas. And they came all this way because they hated the gospel message of Paul and Barnabas. It threatened the religion of works and culture that granted salvation by the sweat of their brow, by the good works that were there. And it says here that they managed to persuade the crowds, to persuade the crowds to follow them. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. And I think one of the things we sometimes do is we underestimate the world's hostility to the gospel. We think, well, you know, we can tolerate this and and we're okay. You know, we're kind of safe here in, in Barbados. You know, there's sort of a Christian culture. Don't be fooled. When the gospel is preached, opposition will come. And we need to be prepared for this opposition. Increasingly, we see this kind of hostility rising even in what used to be considered Christian countries in the Christian West. We're seeing this hostility to the message in Canada. It may not be so much here in Barbados, but in my youth, it was not like that in Canada either. The crowds are being persuaded that biblical Christians are not just foolish or crazy, but now we are considered dangerous. Christians are being effectively blocked from adopting and fostering children in Canada because of their views. We're seeing now that there is a rising hostility against the Christian worldview. We have political leaders in Canada saying that Canadian values are not evangelical Christian values. They are, as one commentator put it recently, positively evangelical in their hatred of the gospel. And that's happening more and more. And we see this in our passage, don't we? 
Because we see here a remarkable coalition that emerges. Because we see here that it is Jew and Gentile together that do this. They're going into Gentile lands and persuading the Gentiles to stone the Apostle Paul. Now remember, the Jews hated the Gentiles. They would have nothing to do with the Samaritans. They were unclean. They weren't even allowed to enter the temple. There was the outer courts where the Gentiles could come, but that was as far as they could go. They were unclean. They hated them. But now, the old adage, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, comes to play. And so, they agree to stone the Apostle Paul. I often wonder what Paul was thinking in this situation. I was wondering, I, I was wondering even as I was looking at this, whether he remembered the time when he was the one on the other side of the stoning. When he was stoning Stephen back in Acts 7. Of course, we don't know, but it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Sometimes that is an important perspective. I think we are often oppositional in our approach to unbelievers. And instead of thinking compassionately that, but for the grace of God, that could be me lifting up those stones and being ready to reject. So they stoned him and they thought that he was, they leave him basically for dead. They dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, you need to understand, stoning is not something that one typically recovers from. Right? Stoning in those days would mean that they would, they would have a little pit and they would take rocks and they would bury, basically bury them alive. But they would bury them by throwing and trying to hurt until that person was basically dead. And then they would pull the body out and dump it on the garbage heap outside the city. Right? This is, this is primitive sanitation. And so he was taken out for the garbage and left for dead. It's not like getting punched in the face or beaten up. This is serious business. But here we see God's provision for Paul. Supernatural perseverance was given. God is the one who sustains him. He's the one who gives him sustaining grace. Now it says here in verse 20, But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Now, I think it's, it's, it, it's, it's fair to clarify here that this raising up, this was not a revivification or a resurrection. I think that's beyond what the text is. But this doesn't mean that he didn't get harmed from this. A year and a half later, Paul wrote to the Galatians. That's, by the way, these churches that he's ministering to. The churches that he established at this time. And he says in chapter 6, verse 17, he says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He himself bore these as, indeed, badges as he entered into the hostility that was felt against Jesus. He himself felt that hostility. And then again in 2 Timothy 3, writing to his son in the faith, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. 
It's interesting, isn't it, that Timothy, it's likely that Timothy was there when Paul, when Paul was stoned. If we look over in Acts 16, verse 1 to 3, we see that he joins. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who is a believer. But his father was a Greek. He spoke well of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that place, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Timothy was likely there. He was a living witness to the Lord who rescued Paul. And then when Paul writes later in 2 Timothy, he reminds him of this. In the very place where he was ministering. What do we see this rescue? Well, this rescue, I think, is important for us to notice because we see that Paul was rescued for something. What was he rescued for? He was rescued to do more ministry. The very place he was attacked. Verse 20, and in Lystra, and then the next day, he, goes, he travels 60 kilometers to Derby. Not for recovery or physiotherapy, but to preach the gospel. That's what God rescued him to do. Reminds me of a story of uh, U.S. President, former U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt. He was shot on the way to give a campaign speech in the rib. But he refused to go to the hospital. And because after a quick examination, it showed it wasn't immediately life-threatening. So imagine, he's bleeding, right, from a shot. And he went on to give the speech anyway. And as he described it to his friend later, in the very unlikely event of the wound being mortal, I wish to die with my boots on. There's a sense in which this is what the Apostle Paul is seeking to do. Paul was almost killed, but God miraculously preserved him to carry on his message. And this is something that is a comfort to us, an encouragement. You see, no matter what may happen, God's work never fails. As Luther's famous hymn that we'll sing a little bit later says, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. This is how the Lord operates. When you become a disciple of Jesus Christ, your problems obviously don't go away. In fact, sometimes they get worse. But the difference is that God provides the means to endure anything. Now, when I say this, I'm not preaching a health and wealth and prosperity gospel. This is a very real gospel for real people like you and me. 1 Corinthians 10 elucidates this promise. In verse 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God will help us in the midst of our trials. As we are pursuing ministry for Him, He strengthens us. We are not powerless. And we are not to stop serving, really at any time, in the midst of our weakness. In fact, our weakness may facilitate 
Some of you know my sister this past year was diagnosed with a stage 4 plus uh, appendicitis cancer, a very rare cancer, um, very serious cancer. And she narrowly, in God's grace, escaped death. But in God's grace, she did escape death. But while she was facing death, she used the opportunity that was given her to speak the gospel very directly and very clearly to a number of people in her life, including my, my older brother, who's not yet a believer. And she used every opportunity. And in fact, her ministry expanded. Her witness expanded in her weakness. Even as she was struggling to cope with the side effects of the chemotherapy drugs, there was an opportunity. And she recognized that she had been given life. And she was given life from her creator. And she had a desire that as she ended, as, as she faced the potential end of her life, that she not only be ready, but that those around her might be ready. So I just encourage you, in your weakness, God can use that. John Piper is famous for writing a little booklet called Don't Waste Your Cancer. I gave that to my sister early on. And what he is, again, suggesting in that is that there is purpose in everything. If God works all things to good, even our weaknesses, even our infirmities... There is no one who is without use in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not the old who are useless or the the, the handicapped or those who are weak. Because God delights in using the weak to shame that which is mighty in this world. And here we have the Apostle Paul almost stoned to death. Can you imagine what it would be to see a man stand up the next day, preach the gospel with with the wounds of being stoned? There would be a certain gravitas to that. There would be a certain just reality. It's like, wow, this guy survived stoning and he's here. He's saying the same thing. Maybe he's got something I need to hear. Maybe there's something about this that's, that's not like anything else that we can hear anywhere else. Paul was saved and he was strengthened so that he could serve. Now... The quickest way to get home for Paul after all of this would have been overland to Jerusalem. But Paul's concern here is not for his own comfort and ease. He risked his life with his weakened body in order to strengthen his brothers. And this is a really important principle. God strengthens us in order to strengthen others. Now sometimes I think when we pray for healing and we pray for help in these things, we often think about it just entirely in terms of our own narrow focus, how this will benefit me. The way that God works oftentimes is that he, he, he works as part of his greater purpose. We're not strengthened just for our own benefit. God strengthens his, suffer, his suffering servants for his own purposes. We live and serve at his pleasure. Acts later says in, in his, in his uh, sermon to the Areopagus, he says, we live, we move, we have our being in God. We live and you're breathing right now because the sovereign God has given that to you. How are you using that breath? Jesus' pattern is to give gifts. And Paul and Barnabas have been given gifts. They are there to feed Christ's sheep. And part of that feeding of Christ's sheep and following in Christ's path is having Christ's concern for the brothers. 
Paul's missionary concern superseded his own needs and desires so that he could serve and strengthen others. It's very interesting here that we see the, the, uh, they, they go on here when they preached the gospel of the city and had made um, many more disciples. Okay? And the, the verb used here in this verse for making disciples is the same one that is used in the Great Commission. That's what the Apostle Paul and Barnabas did. What they were doing isn't anything more complicated than being obedient to Christ and His commission. And that's what we're trying to encourage us as a church. Now that we have been established, now that we have been discipled in the Word of God, our desire is to be obedient to Jesus Christ and to extend this gospel beyond these four walls. So God takes care of His suffering servant, the Apostle Paul, so that He can serve others. The question is, whom are you oriented towards serving? Is there a concern in you to serve others this evening? It's not just for missionaries on the field. As Christians, we're called to live a life of service every day. Do you think of others before yourselves? Husbands, are you loving your wives more than you love yourself? Wives, are you submitting to your husbands and serving your families? Children, how do you respond to your parents? It's all too easy for all of us to put ourselves and our needs first. It would have been easy for the Apostle Paul as well, but he was following and setting an example for us. And his ultimate desire was to continue to serve Jesus Christ. You can serve Christ all the way to your deathbed. I remember as a young man, my father would sometimes take me on his, uh, his, his hospital visits. Very instructive. I remember he took me to um, a lady that I used to call Annie Bell, because she used to babysit me when I was a little boy. And she had a terrible disease, scleroderma, which is basically where your organs all harden and you die of suffocation, suffocation because your, your, your lungs no longer can contract and breathe. It's a very, very difficult, very painful disease. And I remember Annie Bell looking up at my, my dad and saying, Pastor, why am I still alive? Why am I still alive? And he said to her, Peggy, you're still alive because the Lord is sustaining you. And you still have a ministry to your sons, to the people that come into this room. There is a purpose to your life. And he said, Peggy, are you speaking the gospel? Are you, are you indeed um, thinking about them? She said, yes, I'm praying them. But you're right, Pastor. It's not over. And there was a man that came in and she's like, Julio! <laughs> she's like... This is the guy picking up the garbage in the room, and he's like, he looked up, and he's like, he's like do you know Jesus Christ? And he goes, look at her, and he says, you, she said, you ought to know Jesus Christ. I'm about to die, and you need to know Jesus Christ. And she, from that moment on to the day that she died, just a, a little over a month later, she would speak to everyone that came into her room, and very directly about their need to know Jesus Christ. And she had a very faithful witness. In fact, the doctors and nurses um, some of them attended the funeral because they had been struck by this woman that in her weakness, that how she had exemplified Jesus Christ. God strengthens us. God preserves us every breath that we breathe in order to give glory to him. 
And note Luke's description here. They made many disciples. Now, I want to make note of that language again. They made many disciples. This is not just evangelism that's going on here. This is discipleship. This is not a big crusade, like big evangelicalism, where they drop in for a weekend and they put up a tent and they have a big show. No, as it says in verse 28, they remain no little time with the disciples. That was their practice. You see, Paul and Barnabas were not some side-traveling show. They were actually planting churches. And now once they, they planted the churches, they didn't abandon them. Secondly, we see the strength that's given to new Christians and to church plants in verses 22 and 23. They, they went to the, they made many disciples. They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The strengthening that they're talking about here is obviously internal. It's spiritual. Strengthening the soul. You can strengthen your body all that you want. And you can eat all the chocolate-covered grasshoppers and African mealworms that you can handle. But the thing all men and women and children need is spiritual strength. The strength that comes from the Lord. The faith and repentance that initially comes as we come to rely not only on our own efforts, but on the work of Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. Then we have that sustaining grace, the encouragements that we see here in our passage. First, their encouragement there in verse 22 is to continue in the faith. What does that mean? Well, again, notice the grammar here. The faith. The definite article here. This was a saying in the New Testament that stood for good doctrine. The apostolic doctrine. The doctrine of the New Testament. Remember how the book of Jude begins with a call to contend for the faith. There is one faith. Right living comes from right doctrine. Orthopraxy comes from orthodoxy. But what is this faith? Well, simply put, it's the gospel. It's the gospel that God created the world, a perfect world, and that man rebelled against God and sinned and was cast out of the garden. And then God in His grace promised a Redeemer and delivered. He made a promise and He kept it. And He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to believe that all who would believe in Him would not perish, but have eternal life. And that He would come again to give a new heavens and a new earth. And we've all heard that. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Right? We have the Kevin DeYoung pamphlet on the table there about the, the whole story of the gospel. But as simple as it is to outline the gospel, it's easy to fall away from this. And these churches, don't forget, even though they saw all this wonderful stuff happening, and they they saw the compelling testimony of a disciple dripping with blood preaching to them, they themselves fell away. The first letter that Paul writes in Galatians starts with, Oh, you foolish Galatians! How you have departed. They were begun by the Spirit. And now they preach another gospel. Within a year, these Judaizers tried to take away these precious truths. So this is something that cannot be emphasized enough. We need to press on in the faith. Trusting the gospel and keeping it central. 
But we also see Paul instructing them on the reality of the opposition. He says it's through many tribulations that we must enter the kingdom of God. Do you believe that? I think sometimes we have this this idea that Christianity... We, we kind of have a soft health and wealth prosperity idea. That if I'm just a Christian, then everything will go right in my life. That's not what Jesus promised. He says, take up your cross and follow me. He didn't say, take up your comfort, comfy chair, your little lazy boy, and follow me. He said, take up the electric chair and follow me. That's what the cross was. You know, we wear cross ornaments and and it's, it's a nice piece of jewelry, but actually it was an odious symbol. It was a symbol of death. Jesus says in John 15, the world hated me before it hated you. And then he goes on to say that a servant is not greater than my master. Than its master. As my friend John Miller likes to say, the Christian life is cruciform. It's cross-shaped. It's the cross before the glory. And you will have valleys and challenges, both as individuals and as a church. We live in a world that still has sin. There still is opposition. There still is temptation. And we have to recognize this. We have to recognize that we will face challenges and difficult situations. But that God will use all of those things for His purposes and His glory. Nothing that happens in this church or outside this church is outside of God's control. He is sovereignly in control of every micron in the universe. And he is not some some fake God that's out there. He is the real God who sustains the universe. And the Father knows what he needs. And he knows what we can manage. The cross that you bear may not be the same as the one that is next to the the one that is born by the person next to you. God knows what you need. And wherever you are right now, as difficult as it may be, is exactly where God wants you to be for his purposes and for his glory. We remember that God brings good out of evil, even out of evil intent. In Genesis 50, 20, we have Joseph. And some of you who are doing uh, Bible plans came across it in this last week. Um, Joseph saying to his brothers, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. God can use our sin. He can even use our sin to accomplish his purposes. He is not taken off track. Our trials are things that God can use. G.I. Packer, in his book, speaks about, in knowing God, trials. He says, trials are designed to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy and to drive us to cling to Him more closely. God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities to ensure that we will learn to hold to Him fast. He goes on to say, the reason why the Bible spends so much of its time reiterating that God is a strong rock and a firm defense and a sure refuge and a help for the weak is that God spends so much of his time bringing home to us that we are weak, both mentally and morally, and dare not trust ourselves to find or to follow the right road. Packer says, God wants us to feel 
that our way through life is rough and perplexing so that we may learn, thankfully, to lean on Him. Therefore, He takes steps to drive us out of our self-confidence to trust on Him, to wait upon the Lord. And in light of that, we do not despair. We are not without hope because God is the one on whom we have set our hope. Is that you this evening? Are you going through a trial or a difficult time in your life? Remember, one of the purposes of that is to drive you to God. Don't ignore His work in your life. His work to change and to rebuke and to challenge you. Trials have purpose. Well, we look there in verse 23. We see beyond the trials what the Apostle Paul did to strengthen the church. And it's very interesting. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now it says they appointed them. Um, I believe they led the church in selecting the men for service. We can say here that they were elected, but it's all the same office. Uh, elder, bishop, pastor, those are the words they use interchangeably for pastors or elders. The only other remaining office that's not there is deacon. And so we believe that churches uh, can indeed function without deacons, although it is best for them to have deacons. Who were they here that, that were elected? Well, they were Christians. They were Gentile fears or Jews, men who were familiar with the Old Testament. In a very short time, they were prepared. And again, we say that how they chose these individuals would be according to the principles laid down in the pastorals, that, that they were Christ-like in their character, humble, teachable. And it's interesting here, he says they appointed elders. There's a plurality here. Local churches with their own elders. There's great privilege in having that in the church. And as they did this, they did this with prayer and fasting. And that, I think, is a really important thing. We don't just appoint elders out of, you know, put everybody's name in a hat and say, oh, that's you, and that's you, and that's you, and that's you, right? No, there's prayer and fasting because this is a very serious thing. There is a focus here on Raising up faithful men, faithful to the apostolic teaching. I want to say to you that God uses the same means to strengthen us today as he did through the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. Right doctrine and teaching and biblical churches are a means and a help to us to persevere. When we see the weakness of the evangelical movement... One of the things I'm going to say unapologetically is that we need more confessional Reformed Baptist churches as far as they are biblically minded. Orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, or it should. And we know that God works through trials. We walk by faith through them. There's a fellowship in, in, in suffering. And we have an ongoing call as Christians to die to ourselves in order to see the power of Jesus Christ in our life. When our lives are all about ourselves, there's not much of Christ to be displayed. But as we demonstrate sacrificial love, we are imaging, we are reflecting the image of Jesus Christ in us. 
And God also uses elders, the raising up of elders and leadership in the church to encourage us. There's no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Right? You don't just worship God in your little corner. We're called to come together, indeed, to submit to the leadership that God has appointed through his church. So Paul and Barnabas here lay out an idea for a missional attitude. They understand that, that when we go and carry the great, out the Great Commission, it's not just evangelism. It's about making disciples. It's equipping them. It's strengthening them in the gospel, in good teaching. That's more than evangelism. That's actually church planting. When people come to Christ, churches need to be planted. And I, it is our prayer and hope that as this church grows, that it would not just be about itself, but it would be about extending the Great Commission through, indeed, proclaiming the gospel and making disciples and establishing churches where elders can lead and can propagate and repropagate the gospel of Jesus Christ in various areas. So we see now God has strengthened his church. He strengthened his servants and he strengthened and established new churches. Finally, we see here in verses 24 to 28, God's strength uses, gives strength to sacrificially sending churches. We see here that the Apostle Paul come back to the church that they were sent out of. They come back to the church at Antioch that we read about this morning and its establishment. And we've got to remember that, again, it's not easy for that church to give up. Sending out Paul and Barnabas is not easy to do. But again, it is a heart of Christ. It is one that lets go. It's one that serves a higher purpose. It's not just about that church. It's about the commission of Jesus Christ. And so we need to consider how we can use the gifts that God has given to us, and even to send out the best amongst us to carry the gospel. And I've said to you before, I believe at Covenant, we send out our best to you. And it's our privilege to do that, to follow in this biblical example. And our hope and prayer is that you will continue to do this, and to send out your best to accomplish the gospel ministry. We see that as they come back, they gather the whole church together. Because again, it's not the elders that have sent out the Apostle Paul. It's the whole church. It's not the whole church is involved in sending them. They're not doing all the same task. Some are called to go. Others are there to be support and be senders. And it's interesting here. We see that there is an accountability that comes. There is financial support, there is practical support, there is prayer support that come from the sending churches. And here we see Paul and Barnabas returning to also strengthen the sending church, to report on the the glory of Jesus Christ. One of the things that, that, that is encouraging to the body of Christ is to hear how God is advancing the gospel in different places. One of the things I will do when I go back to our church next week is to give a report as we have prayed and as we've discussed and as we've spent time with you to give a report on what how the ministry is going here in uh, Barbados. Pastor John gives updates as well 
And it's meant to not only provide an accountability, but also to provide encouragement that God is at work in different places. Or to generate prayer when difficulties and trials come. Paul and Barnabas come to the church, but they're not focused on themselves. They have lots to talk about, but the focus in verse 27 is very clear. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Their focus is on Christ. Right? Remember what First Corinthians, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, he says, I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. And here we see that they, they indeed give honor to the fact that it is God who accomplished this. It's not the individuals, it's not the pastors, not Pastor John or Pastor Chris or uh, the deacons that do this. It is God who builds the church. And this is the conclusion of the the first missionary journey. It's been called the, the model journey. And it's a template for us. We see it emerge as a pattern in the book of Acts. Churches commit to preaching the word to save sinners and make new disciples. This may bring persecution, but then by the same word, these and all the disciples are built up in the faith together in the church. And the church appoints faithful elders to lead and shepherd the church. And then the church in turn sends out those who carry the word to others. And the cycle repeats, rinse and repeat. This is how the good work continues. And this is how God continues the work. And he does it wonderfully in his sovereign grace. I think this is important to see that throughout these missionary um, uh, journeys, it is ultimately God who's at work. It's not through the fact that Paul is a silver-tongued speaker that people are one to Christ. It's not that he's a good marketer. Indeed, he was considered a bit of a rough speaker. But God is the one who affects and who indeed brings about the change. That's a comfort and an encouragement. God is the one who opens the hearts of the people that he and Paul and Barnabas ministered to. And God opens hearts that are sometimes very closed. You may be resistant to the gospel. Maybe you've heard it a bunch of times. But you need to understand that the grace of God is irresistible. It is definite in its application. Consider the testimony of C.S. Lewis. Some of you heard of C.S. Lewis. I don't agree with some of his doctrine, but I believe he was a Christian. And this was his testimony. He was very resistant to the gospel. He talks about the time that he was in university. He says, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. And knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing. The divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore That love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. The words, compelle enterare, compel them to come in, 
have been so abused by wicked men that we shudder at them. But properly understood, they plumb the depths of divine mercy. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. God sometimes drags us into the kingdom kicking and screaming. You may have very hardened friends and family and relatives and you think there is just no way. But there is a way. Because there is a God. And He is sovereign. Consider also Lydia's conversion in Acts 16. Verse 14. It says, One who heard us, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart. This is Luke, sorry, saying. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. How was Lydia saved? Because Paul was just a great speaker? No. Because God opened her heart. God opens hearts. I think this is really important for us to, to realize as we carry the gospel to others. We think that the burden all rests on our shoulders. But it is one of the joyful things about the sovereignty of God and salvation is that it is God who saves and he uses weak men and women like you and I. We just need to be faithful. And God will do what God does and bring them into the kingdom according to his purposes and his timing. Unbeliever. If you are an unbeliever this evening, God is sovereign to save you this evening. He is at work to extend the gospel and the mission of his church. Nothing will stop him. Unbeliever, have you responded to the call of God to repent and believe, to turn away from your sins and to believe only and fully on Jesus Christ for your salvation, you will be saved. You will be saved. Do you believe this? Believer, consider what God has done in the past and consider what He will do with you, with us here in Barbados. Do you think that he will be unfaithful to fulfill that call through CRBC, Barbados? Press on in the faith. As you enter 2020 more fully, consider what he might do. Consider who he might call to salvation this year. Do you pray that the Lord would bring salvation into your midst? That we would have baptisms? That we would see the work of Christ come wonderfully to fruition here in Barbados. God knows his people and he will call them in. You and I have the privilege of being his instrument. Are you willing to go beyond yourself to be a channel for God's grace? Are you willing to be rejected as the Apostle Paul was? If you're willing to be rejected for Jesus Christ, then he can use you. He can give you the courage and the confidence that you lack to speak the truth in love. CRBC, we need to follow Christ and the apostolic example that we see in our passage here. We need to commit to the Great Commission. 
to spreading the good news among our friends, our family, our neighbors, and our strangers around us. We need to pray together expectantly and work towards the further establishment of this church and other churches. We need to pray for the lost and keep praying. Keep inviting people to come and to hear the gospel. Sometimes you'll hear a message and you're like, that was just a regular message. But the reality is that everyone has a divine appointment with God and you can use a simple message that meant nothing to you to transform the other person sitting next to you to become a Christian. It's amazing. But we need to exercise faith. We need to exercise faith and to pray. To continue praying. Keep inviting people to come and hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Keep speaking of the gospel. Do not lose the faith. Encourage one another in this. I love uh, a very unknown biography written by Jeff Thomas of a man named Ernie Reisinger. And I love how he came to Jesus Christ. He hated Christianity. He absolutely opposed it. In fact, he had a job where he was working with a Christian. And he quit the job because he wanted to get away from the Christian. He was uh, in, in, in the construction business. right? How many uh, Construction it tends to be a rough thing. So he took a job. He thought, I won't have a Christian this time. And guess what? Guess who his corker was? A Christian. Who then invited him to church. And he said no. He didn't want to be talked to. But for 51 weeks in a row, this Christian prayed and invited him to come to church. And then on the 52nd week, that is one year, he said, okay, fine. And he came and he was saved. And he became one of the greatest uh, Reformed Baptist preachers in America in the early 20th century. He was used by God to reach many others. But he had 51 rejections before he accepted the invitation. Brothers and sisters, we need to persevere. There's no magical formula. There is just to follow in the pattern that's set out by Jesus Christ. To preach the gospel. To believe it. To encourage and strengthen one another. And to press on for the sake and the glory of Jesus Christ. CRBC, press on.